Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. This program is made possible through a partnership with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Marjorie Rendell. Welcome to another podcast in the series of Judges on Judging, presented by the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. I am Marjorie Rendell, and I'm the chairman of the Rendell Center, and pleased to be doing this podcast today with yet another one of my colleagues, Judge Thomas Ambro, who hails from the wonderful jurisdiction of Delaware, where I was born and raised. Uh, Tom is a colleague of mine on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He had served 25 years in private practice in Delaware and Wilmington uh, until being nominated in the year 2000 by President Clinton. So, Tom, welcome aboard. Glad to be with you. Always glad to be with you. Today, we're going to discuss the intersection of First Amendment rights versus laws prohibiting discrimination. Yet another instance in which individual interests need to be balanced against public policy. We're going to be talking about a case that actually Tom authored in our court. I was on the panel with him. Uh, It's called Fulton. It's on its way to the Supreme Court, and it involves this very clash when a Catholic social services agency refused to interview same-sex couples to be foster parents. But before getting to that, let's discuss a recent case, an opinion issued by the Supreme Court of the United States involving the Masterpiece Cake Shop, in which Jack Phillips, who was a baker and owned the Masterpiece Cake Shop, refused to design a custom cake for a same-sex couple. The couple came into his store and wanted to have a customized cake to celebrate their recent marriage. The ceremony of their marriage took place in Massachusetts, since Colorado, where they live, didn't recognize same-sex marriage. Um, And Phillips said he would sell them any of his ready-made cakes, but he wouldn't customize a cake that celebrated same-sex marriage because it violated his religious beliefs and would be what he said forced speech in violation of the First Amendment. So the two individuals brought their case to the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado, contending that Phillips violated the Colorado anti-discrimination law, which prohibited the denial of equal enjoyment of goods or services based on sexual orientation. So the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado held hearings during which there were several dismissive comments by the commissioners that it was despicable to use religion to hurt others, and they accused Phillips of hiding behind religion to perpetuate discrimination. Commission ruled in favor of the same-sex couple, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. So Jack Phillips asked the Supreme Court to take the case, and the court agreed to do so. So the two issues that were squarely presented involved his contention that his being forced to customize a cake for the same-sex couple violated his religious rights and violated his freedom of speech. So we have two First Amendment rights here pitted against discrimination very, very weighty interests on both sides. Tom, what principle would guide a court's analysis of the claim involving religion? Well, the principle that currently applies is, and has for the last 30 years, is a case called Employment Division v. Smith. It's a 1990 case of the Supreme Court. And the court said that the First Amendment obviously excludes all governmental regulation of religious beliefs as such, but the government may not compel affirmation of religious belief or punish the expression of doctrines it believes to be false or impose special disabilities, etc. What it really comes down to, in an opinion written by 
Justice Scalia that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment does not relieve an individual of the obligation to comply with a valid and neutral law of general applicability on the ground that the law proscribes or prescribes conduct that religion prescribes or proscribes. What that means in legalese, you got to have a, obviously a valid law. In this case, it's a provision of non-discrimination that Philadelphia has for those with whom it contracts with that have public accommodations. In this case, it's a foster care service that the city provides. It's neutral, according to the uh, of general applicability, and it's, it is a neutral provision, according to Philadelphia. So the question then becomes, as you see in Masterpiece Cake, however, the court determined that there was religious animosity toward Jack Phillips and his entity, Masterpiece Cake, and that it was showed that, in effect, there was a targeting or singling out of Phillips' business where others were able to get exclusions, and as a result, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Phillips. In this case, the city provides... We're talking now about is, the Fulton case that's on the Fulton way case. To the Supreme Court. Our, right. That's correct. In mm-hmm. our case, the city prescribes that there be non-discrimination, and the Catholic Social Services, which does evaluations of persons who could possibly be foster parents, says that it cannot or will not, for religious reasons, evaluate same-sex married couples. It will evaluate someone who is gay, but not a same-sex married couple. And as a result, they claim that what the city prescribes, the Catholic religion proscribes. All right. Now, when Masterpiece got to the Supreme Court, everyone was hoping that they would decide which interest weighed more heavily. In other words, he could refuse because his religious rights would trump the anti-discrimination law, or that the anti-discrimination law was generally applicable and was not hostile, and therefore it would trump the individual rights that he had. But the Supreme Court didn't do that. They kind of went another way and said, aha, because the commission showed hostility towards Phillips, what they did was wrong. Um, Do you think that the people say the Supreme Court punted, that they had a difficult issue, that they should have decided, and they they didn't do that? But, But we see situations in our court where sometimes it's not the right case to decide the tough issue. Do you, what do you think was going on? I love to envision the, the conference room and the Supreme Court and think of what they're saying around the table. Uh, what do you think they were saying around the table about this case and, and how to decide it? I think in this case, it was, I think Fulton is a better case on the facts for the Supreme Court to consider what to do in connection with whether you keep or overrule or what you do with the Smith case, again, now 30 years old. I do this case all the time in mock trials, and it's very interesting. The students take one side or the other, and I recently had one, and the very compelling argument on one side was, yo, it's just food. So it seems to be pretty attenuated to say, okay, making a cake violate, can violate religious rights and be speech, um, you know, it might have opened the floodgates to all kinds of contentions as to what is speech 
what can violate religion. I think actually one of the questions in the Supreme Court, maybe it's, I'm not sure who it was, saying, well, how about a hairstylist? Um, is this a form of art? And if we say a hairstylist doesn't have to cut the hair of, uh, you know, a gay person or a same-sex marriage couple or whatever, you know, that it violates their speech. So I can see how they might have said, we just, we can't go that far. But I think Fulton is different. Uh, as you say, the facts are squarely, we're a Catholic social services entity. We do not believe in same-sex. How can we recommend a same-sex couple as foster care? Do, do you see that distinction there? Yeah. It, it, interestingly enough, the thing that's fascinating about Fulton, just to digress for a second, this is a case where the principal players involved appear to be all Catholic, including people representing the city. And yet there is, obviously, there are differences. There are wings within the the Catholic Church in terms of, of belief. And so one person from the city says, well, why can't you just be like more, more like Pope Francis and let, you know, work it out? Yeah, I thought that more- was an interesting comment because, you know, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, they looked at these comments in the commission and said it's a hostility. And I'm wondering whether in Fulton, that remark, you know, why don't you just be more like the Pope, um, could could give an out as well and have them say, listen, you just can't show this hostility. Although I think the the district court and we saw that really not as a hostility, but as appealing to the religious underpinnings and the religious beliefs rather than hostility. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's it's an interesting parallel. I mean, it's a a discussion. So also in in our case, you had the city saying, look, we respect your religious views, but we have a policy that says for this program, you can't discriminate against the, in connection with the people that you evaluate. So in effect, if you don't wish to do an evaluation that follows our policy of non-discrimination against persons who are gay and lesbian, then just don't participate in the program. And in fact, in, in our case, if you recall, the, the contract ceased to exist shortly after the injunction was entered by the district court. Interestingly enough, just to go back for a second to the fact that you've got the parties, the players in this, being Catholic. The district court judge, uh, Judge Tucker, who did a really quite a good job on uh, in, in analyzing this case, I thought, said to the parties that, you know, you've been working together for 75 years three quarters of a century, and you work together on community outreach, you've worked together on the congregate care for people who need care, and you work together on foster care evaluations. And can't you just get along like you always have? You've always been able to work it out. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, at the very beginning, as you might recall, of our oral argument, we said, here's what Judge Tucker said, this cries for you just to work it out. And I, I, once I, people think that there's a good chance the Supreme Court might revisit Smith mm-hmm. and it might be more pro-religious, and as a result, they want to take it up and find out. And right. indeed, the Supreme Court so far has accepted cert, and they will hear it, I think, this fall. Yeah. Oh, it seems that the case was not going to go anywhere based on Smith, 
before the district court because under Smith, if it is a generally applicable neutral law, it will be applied and the burden on religion will be outweighed. And that's what happened here. Judge Tucker said, we have employment opportunity versus Smith. That is the law of the land and a generally applicable neutral uh, law that burdens you, we're sorry, but it's generally applicable. It's not motivated towards religion. There is no hostility in the law and the motivation for the law, which is different from some other cases where they look back to history and they say, aha, this law was going to target religion. But that wasn't the case with this anti-discrimination law. So the case is going to the Supreme Court, and uh, there is this precedent out there. The Supreme Court is reluctant to overturn precedent. Uh, they have a principle called stare decisis, but they have done so. Uh, and I would say they're reluctant, but not shy. What do you think is going to happen? Because the issue is squarely before them. I don't think they can punt based upon you know what happened in Masterpiece, where the, the proceedings showed a hostility. Um, I, I don't think the record supports that. So what, what's your prediction about, about what might happen in the Supreme Court? Well, when you look at the Supreme Court from afar, I mean, normally, if, if four vote for, for certiorari, there's an old saying that takes five to make four. So four people vote that take the case up. Perhaps they believe that there is a fifth vote that they can get that would possibly overturn Smith. Interestingly enough, however, the Solicitor General's office has said to the Supreme Court that you don't necessarily have to deal with whether to overturn Smith. On the facts of this case, the Solicitor General's office argues that there was enough religious animosity shown and that there were uh, this particular non-discrimination law wasn't evenly applied, they claim. And as such, under Masterpiece Cake, you could simply rule in favor of a reversal of our decision by saying that there was enough to show under Masterpiece Cake that there was a violation of the free expression uh, rights of the of Catholic social services. And, and I think uh, Mayor Kenny, part of the record also was Mayor Kenny's, um, I think he had some statements or something well, that showed yeah, he, he had got into a three years before three or four years before he had got into a war of words with the cardinal on some issue it wasn't this issue but so interestingly enough in this particular case uh mayor kenny is in the background uh he is not front and center with regard to much of anything as at least as it appeared before the district court remember this case was before the district court on a preliminary injunction so they hadn't even gone to a final hearing. Right. And so the full record has not been developed. And yet that's what was appealed to us. And that's what was the, the Supreme Court was asked to take cert on. And it did. By the way, when I said free expression clause, I meant free exercise clause of the First right. Amendment. So now my, the Supreme Court might send it back for more evidence for a better, better record. I mean, that's another way they could sidestep the issue, if you will. Uh, now, yeah, also, I should just note that there was a uh, an amicus brief filed by Professor Eugene Voloch, V-O-L-O-K-H, and he makes the argument that you don't necessarily have to, uh, as the Solicitor General argues, you don't necessarily have to overrule Smith. So we'll see what happens. The thing about Smith, there's language in Smith, and it's fascinating. 
Who wrote Smith? Justice Scalia wrote it mm. 30 years ago. And he has a footnote in there that if you start getting into the game or, or the analysis of, well, does this religious belief trump some sort of valid law, in this case, non-discrimination, you're going to get courts in the middle of a whole lot of battles and balancing. And mm -hmm. it might not be very good lines of demarcation. There's it a could footnote. get ugly. It could get ugly. And the consequences could get bad. And I think to some extent, I, I believe that may be the fear of the Solicitor General's mm -hmm. office. That may be the fear of Professor Volokh. He has said that the consequences, for example, he quotes a footnote five that Justice Scalia put in the Smith case. In the business of determining whether the severe impact of various laws and religious practices suffices to justify a constitutionally mandated exemption from a generally applicable law, we shouldn't be in that business. It's yeah. horrible to yeah. contemplate that federal judges will regularly balance against the importance of general laws the significance of religious practice. Those are his words. It is yeah. horrible to contemplate that. Yeah. And well, and it's interesting. Over time, we in the courts, and I don't think people are aware of this, we will not judge the sincerity of one's religious beliefs. Correct. We do not, we correct. Do not go there. That is a principle. Uh, a prisoner can claim that something violates his Muslim faith or whatever, and we, we, we just don't go there. There's another principle called attenuation. And sometimes if we view that something is too attenuated or too far removed from an essential interest or an issue. And, and I think in Masterpiece, that definitely was an issue. The idea that cake making, it's only food, is that really First Amendment? Uh, and they might take that tack in this case as well with Fulton and say, listen, interviewing a foster person, now they, they need, as part of the interview process, the social services agency had to judge the familial relationship. So part and parcel of what they were being asked to do was to make a determination as to the propriety or the character of the familial relationship. And it could be that someone could say, well, that, that still is too attenuated from their own religious beliefs. Or you might say that causes them to have to bring to bear their own beliefs. So there are these principles at play, but I think that footnote is very interesting and important. You know, are we really going to go there? Are we really going to start drilling down right. on someone's religious beliefs? Who are we and, to do this? And Professor Volokh gives examples of that. For example, uh, in 1997, I think it was, there was a case called Glucksburg, G-L-U-C-K-B-E-R-G, something like that. Supreme Court refused to recognize a right, a substantive due process right to assist the suicide. But if Smith were overruled, Professor Bullock points out, any person who claims a religious obligation to assist in suicide might trigger the very sort of, of inquiry that Glucksburg supposedly forecloses. Mm -hmm. And you've got, he gives other examples of that type of cases down the line, beware of the consequences of what you do here because it may come back to haunt you. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I think that may be in the back of the mind of the Solicitor General's office and saying, oh, let's, let's go careful on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that historically in enacting laws, Congress can carve out exceptions based on a collision with religious beliefs. And historically, just as we don't question someone's sincerity, historically, we, we believe that 
a religious tradition is a very important value in our country. Um, for instance, in o Obamacare, the religious entities by law do not have to comply with the contraceptive mandate, meaning a church does not have to supply contraceptive coverage to its employees because Correct. of the religious beliefs. Now, there's some litigation as to how far away from an actual church do you have to be in order for you to say, oh, my religious beliefs you know, collide. But here, it's the court carving out the exception. Shouldn't we just say, listen, it's for Congress to do, it's for, for Congress to carve something out when they think, for instance, the city could pass an ordinance that amends the anti-discrimination law that says, unless something you know, violates your religious belief. It's kind of a philosophical question, but you know, what is the role of the court versus Congress in, in this type of an issue? Yep. Who's going to enter the thicket? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have two competing principles. Yeah, it's you can't discriminate difficult. and All you right. can't uh, impair uh, significantly under Smith. And I, I, I emphasize that adverb. You can't impair significantly uh, someone's freedom of religious expression. And the question is, yeah. how significant is that yeah. here? You know, interestingly enough, I mean, whatever happens, uh, there's an old saying, uh, I think it was a concurrence by Robert Jackson in 1953 or so, a case called Brown v. Allen, in which he said the uh, the Supreme Court doesn't get the final word because it's infallible, it's infallible because it gets the final word. So they do get the final word on this, and, and, and they can decide to take it on, and they certainly have that right to do so. The concern that some of the advocates have, however, is that watch it, this could really open a Pandora's box of issues coming down the pike that will be very, very difficult for courts and will result in a significant amount of non-uniformity. So it takes four votes to grant certiorari. Of course, there are Correct. nine justices. So it's not necessary that there's going to be something uh, you know, cataclysmic here. The four think, well, we should take it up. Uh, but you, as you said, you need that, that other vote. Um, so let's turn to what we're doing in this uh, pandemic. Uh, how, are, how are you coping? Are you, are you at home in your... Uh, no, your, I'm, in, yeah. I'm in the office every day. I, are I, you really? I'm the only one here. Well, that's I, why you're there, because no one else is. Yeah, everybody is working remotely. And I, including my, Linda, the judicial assistant, she, I, she has, I gave her my laptop, my court laptop, and she works from home. And so I'm here. I, we talk every day uh, with clerks and, and I, at least uh, we, uh, three, three or four times a week, we have a Zoom call. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are getting stuff out. You're probably noticing the same thing. You and I and a whole lot of other judges have a lot of things on our plate. We're, we might be flying here to do a program or doing something there, and we're not flying anywhere right now. And we're as a result, we have a lot more time to get things done. It's amazing. By not exactly. having to um, get my act together and, and, and commute in the morning, I have an extra, and the afternoon, I have an extra two and a half hours to, to get things done. I may never end up back in chambers. <laughs> <laughs> the, how have you found uh, the arguments by audio? I actually like them a lot. And let me explain to people, when we have argument, we call cases for argument, usually the three of us are on the bench in the courtroom and the lawyers are there and we'll argue four or five cases a day. And 
the lawyers get up the podium and we immediately start peppering them with questions and we start interrupting them we interrupt each other and it's in some ways it can be a free-for-all in a in a hot case but telephonically I have found that without the distraction and cognizant of the difficulty of telephonic argument I'm much more restrained I listen much more intently I take notes and I kind of hesitate when to ask a question because I'm definitely interrupting and I found it much more satisfying if you will an oral argument there's there are fewer distractions and I could really concentrate um, and recall what they do so I don't know what your experience has been I did the first one on March 16th when they everything was beginning to shut down and all the ones I've done and I've done quite a number since I have no problem with them council says have said to me that the concern or the, the downside for them is that you can look at a judge's body language or facial expression and you can get a communicative clue as to whether that judge is heading or what that judge is thinking and you can't do that by audio. So there I are certain signals that we have when we interact with each other in person that you cannot pick up via an audio. But I must say, like you, I have found that I am probably less questioning and mm -hmm. more listening mm -hmm. in the audio. And I don't know exactly the reason for it, but it's not a bad thing. I, I agree. I agree. And I do. I can understand the council's predicament because our body language, <laughs> we, we don't keep things hidden very easily. You can, you can tell, you know, kind of what we're thinking uh, and you can tell what they're thinking as well. But, uh, but I, I do find it, I find it helpful. Well, this has been this has been great. Um, I really appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about this. Uh, here again, you know, the courts are called upon every day to balance the individual rights against the public interest or policy, um, and and we do it. Uh, yeah, we, we can't shy away from it, and it's difficult. Here, um, you have two sincerely held views. Yep, and that are in you know in. In clash with each other and the question is what is the test that you apply to this do you continue to apply the test that Justice Scalia wrote about in Smith or do you adopt a new test and if so what and then we'll, we'll go from there we'll figure it out all right well stay healthy and well we will see you in the courthouse if ever we get back there thank you you've been listening to judges on judging a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. Information about and resources from the Rendell Center are available online at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.